Hello and welcome to another episode of Flying High with Flutter. I'm your host, Alan Wyma. I want to give a quick announcement before we start this episode. Uh, I've already started up on a course all about how to integrate Rust in Flutter, and it just so happens that our guest today is uh, definitely in similar space as this, so it's good that we have her on around this time. Didn't plan this, it just kind of worked out, so I'm glad that you scheduled this time. Uh, but if you're interested in how to integrate Rust with Flutter, please check out rustwithflutter.com and sign up, and you will be getting some announcements. We should be having a Black Friday sale. So please sign up and you'll get that notice uh, in your email. But anyways, back to the show. We have Lily Mara, who is a software engineer. Uh, why don't you give a quick intro about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Alan. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, hi to everybody who's watching. Um, I am uh, I'm actually, I was a software engineer. I'm now an engineering manager at uh, OneSignal here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, we provide uh, customer messaging solutions, and we use Rust in uh, multiple of our, our backend applications, and it helps us to achieve you know, really high throughput, really low memory needs. And uh, the reason that I'm here today to talk with you, Alan, is uh, I'm here to talk about my, my book, which is Refactoring to Rust, which is all about how you can take an existing software project and you can make it maybe faster or safer by identifying key components and uh, rewriting just those teeny little pieces in Rust, those pieces where performance really matters or where safety is really important. Um, you know, I think, you know, when, when you learn an exciting new language, you, you may be tempted to rewrite the whole world in, in that language. And it's just not, it's not feasible, especially for, you know, a project that has uh, deadlines and constraints and all this stuff around it. So. I think you can leverage yourself much more effectively by uh, by identifying the the pieces where you have bottlenecks and trying to resolve those with Rust. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. My first uh, inkling with Rust was uh, for well, I mean, I've always kind of played with it, but I never really got too much into it. Um, but I've always wanted to, and then finally, I had a use case where I was parsing XML for a client, and I was using Elixir because it makes things much easier for. Um, with concurrency, right, mm -hmm. with the way they have their actor system set up. Um, but then I noticed that, like, it took about 10 minutes and, like, gigabytes of RAM just to parse, like, hundreds of XML files. And I thought to myself, you know what, I've always been wanting to use Rust. But then you always tell yourself, like, don't introduce a new technology to something. Right. <laughs> because you may, you know, be biting off more than you can chew. And that feeling was still there at the beginning because, like, when you're working with Rust, you have so many things that the bar check is the biggest hurdle to kind of get over. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, anyways, I'm very happy I did it because now I went from like 10 minutes to processing down to about 10 seconds of total runtime for the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. It, That's a massive, massive difference. Well, I only replaced one part of it too. So um, I went through several different parsing libraries in Elixir before I just said, okay, I'm going to use this parsing library for this, these bunch of files, but then I'm going to use Rust mm -hmm. for this one. Because okay. the, it wasn't it wasn't linear, right? The other one was very pressing, very linear, so I could just pattern match keep going down. But when I had nonlinear, then it made much more sense, and it worked like that. It was amazing. I was super I happy with it. That brought nice. me on my journey to really getting more and more into Rust. Nice. And uh, anyways, so this topic is definitely very near and dear to my heart because it's. Uh, I don't think many people their first thing with Rust is like doing FFI necessarily, unless I think it's one it's of the few people. It's a scary topic, you know. Um, the uh, the the common denominator for FFI generally is 
see, right? And I think that's where that's where a lot of people get their their first foray into into FFI, and that's you know sort of what what Rust and and other languages like uh, Go, Java, they like tout that as a, a feature, like oh we have good CFFI, and like if everyone knows CFFI, then you can you can talk. However, I, I think most programmers are kind of scared of of C, and especially with FFI, you're not just worrying about the the memory model of Rust or the memory model of Java. You're also now worrying about the the C memory model, which, as I think we're aware, uh, is fraught with uh, <laughs> with with footfans. So, yeah, it's it's a scary topic, but. Um, I think with with just understanding a, a little bit more about how memory is laid out, and uh, you, you can uh, you can do it without shooting yourself in the foot too uh, too hard. And I think learning Rust is especially helpful in in that journey because all of the rules of Rust, you know, the the borrow checkers rules, the the single ownership. Um, these are things that many, many well-structured C programs are already doing, but uh, there's nothing to help you do them. It's just the the programmer's responsibility to definitely not break the rules, I promise, um, as compared with Rust, where they're, they're enforced by the compiler. So I think if you, you know, manage to internalize Rust's rules, then you can, uh, you can then move on to uh, having having the little bit less uh, guardrails that you have with uh, with FFI without that being too scary, I hope. Well, some of the backlash. So I tried talking to quite a few C C and C plus plus developers about Rust, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Yeah, this is amazing," because I knew about these issues like double free and yeah, use use after free, just these kind of simple issues. And mm-hmm. you kind of think to yourself, like, "How do you not know that?" But at the same time, I'm not, I've never been a C developer, so I couldn't tell you about that. But since it happened so many times, it must be a, something that ha- I mean, it must be something that occurs more often than people really think about. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of going back to like, you know, why should I care about Rust when you know um, when C has been around for so long and and, and this kind of stuff? Like, well, why should I care about it? Why should I even bother to take a look at it when if I'm already thinking I'm a good C developer? Right. Yeah. I mean. You might be a great C developer. You might be the best C developer that's out there. But at a certain point, you are going to need to collaborate with somebody. And unless you want to spend inordinate amounts of time, you know, writing documentation on ownership rules of functions and uh, validating that all your collaborators are uh, perfect C developers just like you, uh, you know, you're you're gonna start to be limited or run into run into bugs. I mean, the main reason I think that folks should care about Rust is all of the uh, all of the companies that are noticing. Hey, we're spending so much of our time, so much money on fixing memory safety bugs in C and C plus plus programs. I think. I think Microsoft identified, you know, 40-50% of security vulnerabilities in Windows uh, in some recent year were related specifically to memory safety violations. And these are things that if you're writing Rust, you simply can't do. The compiler will not accept programs that have these bugs in them. 
Sorry, I just wanted to butt in for a real quick. I think the number you gave is a little bit low. So okay. I remember the number is 70%, but I wanted to ver verify the, the word. Um, so from this article on, you can hear my keyboard. Yeah. So from the article actually on, uh, msrc-blog.microsoft, they say roughly 70% of the security issues that the MSRC, which I'm not too sure what MSRC is. I'm guessing, um, Microsoft Research Center. Okay. I was brought on to you. You're the expert, <laughs> but that makes sense. I, I have yeah. no idea. I'm just guessing. <laughs> Could be. Uh, anyways, so 70% of the security issues that MSRC assigns a CVE to are memory safety issues. Hmm. So they said that this means that if software had been written in Rust, 70% of these issues wouldn't have been uh, eliminated, which is crazy, right? It's crazy. Yeah. I was just thinking else before I lost the thought in my head is, um, the, do you remember this Israeli bug in iOS that happened recently? Um, sorry, when I say Israeli, I'm talking about the, there's an Israeli company that was exploiting a memory safety issue within iOS. I, I don't remember that one, no. Yeah, so this bug actually, it's funny that we hear like, oh, you know, the, if you, if you have a bug in your code, you can get somebody killed, but apparently this one actually got some people, um, executed because they oh, used geez. the exploit to get into people's phones. Uh, even um, the president, David, was it uh, Macaron, the guy from the heads of France? He mm -hmm. also got infected by this one. So it was, I forget what it was called, but um, yeah, this was an issue both in iOS and also in uh, macOS. Mm -hmm. Just before Monterey was released, they released a fix for it. Um, but yeah, this stuff is scary. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very scary. Um, I was going to uh, slightly uh, temper us to, to remind folks that not every bug that exists is a memory safety bug. You know, there are, there are logic bugs and you can write a logic bug in any language. If you say, uh, you know, drive 20 meters instead of drive five meters, the Rust compiler won't help you with that. But, uh, when you do have memory safety bugs, the, uh, the consequences are generally, as, as you just, uh, told us, you know, very, very serious. So. It's really nice that the, the Rust compiler can help us to avoid problems like this. Uh, just to kind of go back on what I was talking about, this one's called uh, Pegasus. Pegasus, So okay. if you ever heard of this one, yeah. Haven't and I think they said that this is also a memory safety bug, and I think somebody said that it could have been fixed with Rust. Um, hmm. So this is kind of scary. I think also the Heartbleed was also similar, that it was also a memory yep. safety bug. Heart Heartbleed was definitely a memory safety bug in uh, OpenSSL a couple years ago that came to light. And uh, yeah, that one could not have happened in Rust. And I think there's another similar one that was affecting uh, Intel processors only too, right? So uh, is that Rowhammer? Uh, I forgot the name, but if I heard it, I would definitely remember. Rowhammer or like Meltdown There's something about Meltdown. Should be Meltdown. Meltdown, I think, is the one I'm thinking about. Okay. So that was also a memory safety issue, right? I don't remember the nature of of uh, all of those different ones. There's too many, too many giant vulnerabilities to keep track of, unfortunately. Yeah, was, this one says it was a, a race condition because I think it's like mm. the CPU does some like pre-processing before you actually need it in order to make things faster. Right. Yeah, Meltdown and right. Spectre were the two biggest ones. That's right. I remember those. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Race condition uh, is is a pretty broad term. You know, this can, like I said, this can be a logic bug, uh, or it can actually be a memory safety bug if you're, you know, not using protected memory access or atomics or something like that. 
to, to access shared memory from multiple threads. So that piece of it, the piece of, uh, the piece of, uh, race conditions that is memory safety related is also not possible for Rust. It's very, uh, safe and non-scary to write parallel Rust code, which is great. In any case, I think the, the most important part to talk about is that even if you think this kind of issue is really important across all industries, right? Like, so like you said yeah. before, even if you're great, you have to still have to collaborate. Well, even if you're not collaborating, you're still relying on something that somebody else made most of the time. Nobody's going out there and making their own string library if they are. But right. Congrats, congrats to them. Uh, that's going to take you some time. But in general, like, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, Rust, I think, helps to solve. And I'm not saying go out there and rewrite everything in Rust. I'm not that kind of person, but. No. Definitely consider that into your toolkit if you're going to be making something uh, new. Uh, it's not just because the new hotness, right? It's about, you know, there's a lot of things that you may overlook and there's a lot of dependencies and stuff that you're going to be pulling in and they may not be the most like the SSL is used by nearly every single like web server out there. Absolutely. And that one was was hit with, with a big bug that affected everybody around the world. Mm-hmm. So it's super scary that this kind of stuff can happen. But at the same time, like we need to be aware and uh, I'm hoping that the stuff that is solid kind of stays solid and stuff that is new can really be looked at in a new way. Um, maybe Rust is a solution, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even beyond the uh, the security implications like we've been talking about, you know, I think Rust is, it, it does make, uh, it does make programming, I think, more fun and uh, more more rewarding. I think the the data structures and the facilities that are available to you as a Rust developer are really ergonomic. Uh, APIs are generally pretty uh, easy to use because of the uh, the type system. It sort of forces you down the the path of correct usage for most things, which is uh, generally pretty helpful. And then uh, something that I I'm not sure if it's if it's fully been uh, exploited or, or tracked, but uh, a theoretical performance uh, benefit that Rust has over C actually is because of C's, uh, you know, dynamic memory model and the way that it's just totally on the programmers to make all the decisions correctly. Um, many C libraries, when you pass them data structures, they actually have to make uh, what's called defensive copies of those data structures. So like many C libraries, if you pass if you pass a string to some library function, they'll actually copy the entire string because they have no way to validate that you don't later modify the string or deallocate the memory associated with the string, something like this. So, you know, allocations are a, a very small, you know, micro-optimization, removing those. But in theory, Rust has some uh, leeway where it could advance past C uh, because of the, the stricter compiler rules. But the okay, I, I think that's that's definitely true. But let's talk about um, because now you're making me remember about your book. So as I said to to Lily before, she's one of the few guests who have actually had time to take a look and get into her book because uh, we're doing the course, and I just want to make sure I'm doing as good as possible for you guys. Um, but but anyways, uh, you had a really cool section where you're like passing a string, I think, from C to Rust, and uh, yeah, you had this issue where you not actually issue, but it was pretty interesting where you like you actually managed to make a string slice from that string 
and reuse the memory. But if that string slice was not UTF-8, this would fail, right? But I think we actually can catch that. So then we can probably use then go back to OS string and try to get it that way. That's correct. Yeah. So Rust Rust strings are always UTF-8. That's like a constraint that's uh, built into the language, and you know everything that uses a string type in Rust assumes that a string will always hold valid UTF-8. Um, so this means that you you know you only need to do that checking one time. So for example, if you're like you were just talking about, if you're reading a if you're reading a string into memory in C, there is no assumption about the encoding or the character set or anything like that that's used on the string. So if any function needs a string, like needs a UTF-8 string to work correctly, that individual function generally is going to be doing its own checking to to validate that your string is is UTF-8. So you're going to have lots of repeated uh, checks. Whereas with Rust, um, if you have a if you have a string, an instance of the uh, the string slice type or a heap allocated string, it's assumed that it's valid UTF-8 because it it has to be at uh, construction time. And yeah, I think the method that I was using in there was like you know. SDR from or string from UTF-8, which uh, returns a result, which is uh, an enum of either a success case or a failure and the the associated error. And so there again, we have the compiler is like forcing you to deal with the possibility that um, that this UTF-8 check failed. So you cannot possibly proceed past the UTF-8 check without uh, you know, checking on the result of this uh, this function call. Like you can't you can't accidentally use a string that's not valid uh, UTF-8. There are many many different types of strings in Rust to to sort of cope with all these various possibilities that exist. Um, and I I've seen a meme passed around a few times where like you know one programmer is looking at uh, a, ch- a char pointer in C. And then the Rust programmer is looking at uh, vecuate, charray, uh, os string, c string, uh, heap string, string slice. There's all these, you know, various kinds of uh, string types that exist in Rust. And you know, similar to what I said about ownership rules, you know, all of these different types of strings they exist in C. And programmers need to be aware of these differences, but the language provides no facilities for helping you deal with them. So, uh, you know, take for instance, uh, the static string slice versus the heap allocated string in Rust. Those are two, uh, very different types. You can do read operations on both of them. Read operations work exactly the same way on both of them. But you can only write to a heap allocated string because it's the only one that has dynamic memory associated with it. That limitation, that exact limitation, exists in C for uh, char pointer strings that are compiled into a binary, like that you literally write as a, a string literal between double quotes, uh, compared with you know malloced strings that exist on the heap. Like, but the language will just let you write to that uh, static string. Uh, that's like compiled into the binary, and I, 
people are probably going to tell me in the comments that I'm wrong, but I believe it's undefined behavior if you do that. And, uh, you know, you don't want to, but the language will just let you. So that's a limitation that exists. You have to be aware of it. You should be reallocating your string if you're going to write to it, but the language will just let you get away with it. I think that's a really good strong point to make about Rust, too, is that they try as hard as possible to, I don't know if it's completely been all removed, but basically remove this thing about undefined behavior, um, which is I think is super great because if you are a great C developer, if you ask somebody, what happens on a double free? I don't think the guy could ever tell you because, like I said, it's undefined behavior. You don't know what's going to happen. Right. Um, that's really interesting and scary because those kind of situations happen. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's scary. I mean, I, you can you can trigger undefined behavior in Rust um, in un, unsafe code blocks or unsafe functions, um, but these are always like gated off. Like they always have the unsafe label around them. Generally, when folks are writing unsafe code, they'll provide like comments that describe you know why the block is is actually uh, safe. Um, and I think people have realized that it's a bit of a misnomer, the unsafe keyword, because really it just means unchecked. Like you you shouldn't actually be writing Rust code that's unsafe or could possibly blow up at runtime. Like the checks should always be there. Um, the difference is sometimes the compiler is not able to uphold invariants that your code needs in order to run. For example, if you're interfacing with C code, C doesn't care about Rust's memory model at all. So you have to call, you know, a function like a string from UTF-8, which takes in a, a U8 pointer and a length. And, you know, you have to either do some validation to make sure that that length is the correct length for, um, uh, for the U8 pointer buffer associated with it, or, you know, you have to trust that the C code passed you the right length. Um, and there's, you know, not much you can do if it, if it isn't. But all we're doing in unsafe blocks is we're turning off a little bit of the compiler's helping hands when we absolutely have to. Um, and we can trigger undefined behavior in these blocks, but generally it is, uh, the, the language works as hard as possible to stop you from being able to do that. There was actually a deprecated function, I think, Last year, maybe two years ago in Rust, uh, in the standard library, the std mem uninitialized function was determined to be essentially impossible to use correctly without triggering undefined behavior. And so the, the, the language teams, uh, uh, deprecated that function and created a new interface that will still allow people to create uninitialized memory, but will be uh, safer for, for folks to use and will not trigger undefined behavior. I think this happened recently, right? Because I remember hearing at least something similar uh, about this, about uninitialized stuff. It's like you wanted, I, don't, I didn't quite understand what would be the reason that I'd want to like have data, but not actually initialize it yet. I think it's upon use and it gets initialized. Yeah. So, it's it's kind of a performance uh, optimization, like a micro optimization. So, for example, if you're if you're a C developer and you use the uh, malloc function to request a, a buffer from the operating system of memory, um, 
it's just going to hand you a chunk of memory and it's not going to zero the memory. It's not going to put any particular value in the memory. It's just going to hand you a block of memory and whatever data used to be there, uh, you're just going to get. And if you don't, uh, if you don't clear it out or you don't write valid values into that uh, memory buffer, then you, you may trigger uh, undefined behavior or you may have some problems. Uh, that's fine for C. It works with C's memory model just fine. But Rust had an additional constraint on their memory model, which is the Rust compiler always assumes that if you have a T, like some type T, that there will always be a valid instance of that type in the memory that's associated with the value of that type. So that's kind of, that's kind of confusing. Um, but if we think, for example, about a, a vector, which is, uh, I believe a vector is two numbers and a pointer. It's a, uh, and the order is probably wrong, but it's a uh, capacity. So the total number of items that could fit into the memory buffer a length, which is the number of items that are actually in the memory buffer, as well as a pointer, which is the, the pointer to the beginning of the, the buffer region. Uh, if we think about a, a vector, like there are certain invariants that need to be held there. Like the pointer always needs to be a valid region of memory. And the capacity always needs to be greater than or equal to the length. Like you can't have a hundred items in a vector that's only big enough for two. However, if you constructed a, a vector using uh, stdmem uninitialized, you know, it might give you back uh, a pointer to memory in the code segment, uh, which is non-editable, and a, uh, a capacity of zero and a length of, you know, 20 billion. And I, I don't know what intrinsics are in the compiler, but it's possible that the compiler could emit code that, you know, runs incorrectly based on those assumptions, even if you don't actually use uh, the VEC to do anything. Like, it's it's written in the, you know, behavior rules of the compiler. The compiler is allowed to make these assumptions, and so we have to uphold those assumptions. I kind of want to go back to talking about strings for a second, because yeah. um, I think our, our audience is really interested in Rust, and, and so I think they must be looking at FFI. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is this, we talked about string and we talked about string slice and also OS string. Um, but I think the most important thing is string and string slice, because if you're writing plain Rust, those come up quite a lot. Uh, yeah. well, maybe my first question, I have, let me just throw two questions at you, right? How do you properly pronounce the string slice? Because it's always ampersand STR. And the second question I have is like, why would it, when would I choose one over the other? And why do we have two also? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and let's see, pronunciation. I, I guess I usually say string slice and heap string to disambiguate between the two different things. Um, and the difference between them, uh, and this is actually present in many, many types within Rust, not just, uh, strings, but the difference between them is a string slice is essentially a view onto a uh, onto a string, and that might be a string from any arbitrary point in memory. So a, a string slice is just a length and a pointer, and, and that's it. So this might be 
a string literal that you, you know, wrote within double quotes that's in the code of your Rust program. Uh, we call that a static string slice. It might be uh, a substring of a heap allocated uh, string. It might be it might be a substring of uh, a static string. It might be a substring of a substring of a substring of you know any region of memory coming from anywhere. Um, generally speaking, if you do not need to mutate, uh, if you do not need to mutate a string, then you should be dealing with string slices because it's significantly more flexible than using uh, a static heap string. Or sorry, not a static heap string. There's no such thing. Then, as compared with using a, a heap string, um, so if you if you use the type, uh, you know, capital S T R I N G, that is a heap string. That is a string buffer which is always 100% of the time allocated on the heap with dynamic memory. Uh, it is the only way to have a uh, a mutable UTF-8 string in Rust. In a standard library, I'm sure there's crates that have other string types, but uh, that is the type we use for mutable uh, UTF-8 strings. Um, so if you need to append characters, append substrings, you would uh, need a string. But if you are, if you're, for example, uh, iterating over the lines within a file or an I/O object, uh, you would probably want string slices rather than uh, heap strings. Because, for example, if you have a... Uh, if you have, say, a, a 100 megabyte file and the whole thing fits into memory, you can read that entire thing into one giant heap-allocated string. And then you can actually iterate over all of the lines just using uh, string slices because the whole... Um, sorry, it's kind of weird to talk about uh in words without code <laughs> um well because a string slice is basically a, a pointer and a length right and so you would just take yeah you just iterate through right yeah each string slice is as the name suggests it is a slice it is a piece or a view of the big heap allocated string that's that's sitting out there so you know if you have a hundred megabyte file you can look at each individual line without having to create a new memory allocation for each individual line. All right, but now when we say line, like, are, what are we defining as a line? Is it every single new line character? Um, yeah, I mean, this was just this was just a, an example. So, string slice is not necessarily related to new lines. Um, you can you can hold as many lines of text as you want within a string slice. That was just, you know, a common example. Somebody reads in a big file and they want to look at each line individually. Um, you know, you would you would look at each line as an individual string slice rather than a heap allocated string. And I think the also for is it for each one there's also a null byte at the end of the, no, of the that's not line? true. No? Rust strings are not null terminated. If you need a null terminated string in Rust, you would use the C string type. Uh, C string or C STR types, which are heap allocated C strings and views onto heap uh, views onto C strings. So similar to uh, those other type. Oh, wait, no, you can't have you can't have a slice of a C string because it has to be null terminated. Ah, yes. Uh, the the difference is C string is an owned 
C string, so that's something that Rust will be responsible for deallocating, and CSTR is a borrowed C string, so that's something that Rust would not uh, deallocate, and it will assume that uh, C code is later going to uh, deallocate. So even somebody seasoned at you, it takes some time to, to think about all these. I'm just still yeah. trying to process everything. Uh, yeah, it's, I think the, I think, I think, I also brought this up before the show. One of the confusing things um, that I was trying to wrap my head around is that there's this thing called, uh, there's a section, a module called FFI. Um, there's a section, I think, specifically about OS. And then there's, uh, of course, things like libc and these kind of shared libraries, which you can also bring, which also have some kind of FFI piece. As somebody, if I want to just add Rust to my program, like, where should I start? And do I actually need libc? Do I need, can, can I use just straight stuff straight from the FFI create or FFI module within Rust standard library? Or what, I, I need some help over here because <laughs> I'm getting lost. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, it depends on what your, what your like host language is basically. So for, for folks who are listening to this, who presumably are, uh, Flutter developers, I believe there's actually, uh, there are crates, which is as Rust term for libraries, uh, which are specifically designed for integrating Rust, uh, with Flutter. So if you use one of those, it can handle a lot of the, uh, the heavy lifting for you. And the name of that actually escapes me right now. I probably should have looked that up right before this call. Um, but there are similar libraries which are available for other languages. So in, in my book, I actually have uh, at least one chapter which is discussing using the py03 crate to integrate Rust directly with Python code. And the library handles all of the interaction directly for you. You can uh pretty much always drop down to CFFI as like a lowest common denominator. But I would say that for most folks, using one of these libraries is probably going to be a bit uh, a bit simpler. But yeah, libc and, and the raw FFI stuff is generally an option that people can use if they need to do something that's kind of tricky or outside the purview of these libraries. Yeah, I think I found one um, mm-hmm. called the Flutter Rust Bridge. Yes, that's the one I was thinking Is of. Is that the one? Yeah. This one seems more like a code generator, which could be useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too sure. But yeah, that you. Okay. But at least it answers my question. So I was kind of cheating and asking you questions before we had our show. I apologize in case that bothered you. But uh, my question mm-hmm. was like, you know, if I have a U8 int list, like what would that be within Rust? But then what, what would that be within C, right? Because you always have to write the C binding. Um, so when I'm saying that, I'm talking about like, if I'm using Rust to create that C bridge, I guess you would call it. Right. That would be what kind of, that would be a pointer, right? Yeah. So the, the, (laughs) okay. So the C equivalent types that you would write within Rust for that would probably be, um, uh, pointer mute U8 and, and that would be the, the pointer to the buffer. And then you would also need the length, which would be a U size. Um, and then the, like, if you're writing actual C code, that would be like, oh, what is, what is that type called in C? I think it's like uint 8t. So it would be uint 8t pointer and a size t. So a vec u8 would translate to 
So I'm trying to wrap my head around this stuff here. So, but a VEC UA is owned, right? So actually there'd be some Correct. copying happening. Yes. You can also, you could also construct that as a slice. If you were just borrowing the data and not mutating it, you could use a slice from raw parts, which you could also construct from a pointer and a length. Um, and then I think, yeah, I think actually that would be the preferred way to do it. And then if you wanted to uh, reallocate, you could use, uh, you know, slice to vec uh, to, to reallocate the slice as a vector. But if you're not mutating, then it's it's not necessary. If I'm not going to be mutating, though, you said I should use a mutable pointer. But if I'm not going to be mutating, I could just use a const pointer. You can right? use a const pointer. Yep. Um, I yeah, I believe the slice uh, API allows for using a const pointer to construct. A slice. I could be mistaken, but I believe that's allowed. Well, I feel blown away right now trying to think about all this stuff. Like, I think when I when I saw the syntax of, of the FFI in your book, I was a little bit blown away. Like, what does this even mean? So I think you have const star and then pointer. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's, yeah, it's actually pointer const asterisk const u8 is the Rust syntax for, for that. Okay. I think I have to look it up to actually remember this, but uh, I'll, I'll take a look later on when I go okay. back to this stuff. But it's uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, yeah, I I think I need a moment to kind of catch myself because when I'm thinking about trying yeah. to go back and forth between, it's, it's difficult. But okay, I, I yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, I can uh, I I could talk about like why I got uh, interested in this and why I had so much experience doing uh, FFI uh, previously. Um, ironically, and I would certainly not recommend this to anyone, but the, uh, the first Rust project that I was actually paid to do was an FFI project. Um, I was working at, uh, at Kroger, which is a, a grocery chain in the U.S., and I was working on a, a <laughs> DevOps team, which is a, a fantastic anti-pattern, but, um, we were responsible for setting up a canary deploy system for the rest of the teams at the company. And we had tried, we had gone down one route using uh, a tool called console template, which regenerated the Nginx config files whenever data in a console key value store changed. And somebody on the team did uh, heroic debugging work to figure out why this wasn't working for us. It turned out to be related to uh, disagreements between Nginx and some HTTP clients about how session termination needed to happen. Um, but the end result was we, we couldn't use config generation to do what we wanted. And I don't remember if it was me or somebody else who proposed, what if we did this like dynamically within Nginx itself so like, you know, using Nginx's memory space and process space to do this uh, dynamic routing choices, then we wouldn't actually need to, uh, to edit the config files. We wouldn't need to refresh the processes. We would just keep the same processes running and, uh, you know, all the requests would, would go out through the processes. So the, the very first Rust project that I did as a part of my job was actually to write a Rust plugin for Nginx that did dynamic routing decisions based on a console key value store. And this is a, a very bad first Rust project because A, it's FFI, which is inherently complicated. B, it's FFI with Nginx, which um, 
does not have a very well-documented C API. I'm sorry if there are any Nginx developers listening, but uh, the C API for writing Nginx modules leaves a bit to be desired. And I spend a lot, a lot of time just reading the C code for Nginx to try and understand uh, ownership rules, the process lifetime, uh, and, and all this kind of stuff. But it it gave me a great opportunity to learn a lot about how uh, Rust worked at a pretty deep level, how FFI worked, how to lay out uh, problems like this. And I think in the advanced FFI chapter of Refactoring to Rust, we do actually guide readers through creating their own uh, much simpler Nginx plugin from Rust. So that was kind of a, the trial by fire that I had. I think I stopped at that section. I didn't get, keep going after that, but uh, because I became busy, I had only had time on the weekend last weekend, and it's, mm-hmm. it was quite good. Uh, but yeah, that part also kind of made my brain start to melt because, like, when you have the the bind gen, I was yes. like, oh, okay, that I need some time to digest all this and take a look at it because I was just reading it. I didn't follow along with everything we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if I was following along, it'd probably be easier for me to handle. But I just had time to kind of read as I was on the go, um, and but I understood basically most of it. I think. You know, finally doing it will probably cement everything. But that was a good section. I think it's also good to have the bind gen. I've only done C bind gen, where you actually generate the, the .h files, mm-hmm. not the bind gen. So that's good to know um, that you can use that style. Yeah, I, I haven't actually used uh, C bind gen myself to go from... That is a tool, so that the tools we're talking about for listeners. Bind gen is a tool that will take uh, C or C++ header files and it will create uh, Rust type definitions that match up with that C or C++ API. And conversely, C bind gen will take uh, Rust code and it will generate C or C++ header files so that you can call your Rust code from C or C++. Um, yeah, and I haven't actually messed with C bind gen, just bind gen, because I've been writing little Rust pieces that integrate with existing uh, you know, C programs. But C bind gen, I, I have heard, is a good tool that does what it needs to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was super useful for me. Um, yeah, uh, sorry. So early in the morning over here. So it's about 9 a.m. almost. So let's see. Yeah, I think it's good to hear your background because I usually ask this question, but I'm so interested in this topic that I, I completely skipped your, your background. Um, but so you're working at a new place now, right? That's uh, one signal, I think. That's correct. Yeah, I, I'm working at one signal right now. Um, I actually found one signal on a Rust jobs board when I was moving out here to the the Bay Area a couple of years ago. They uh, we use Rust in several of our backend applications, as I mentioned previously. Uh, we use it for the core of our uh, notification sending system, and it processes. I think we've seen it peak at like 6 million ups per second and around 10 billion per day, I think, mostly. It's a, it's a system that scales very well relative to the other parts of our our stack. We've been really happy with Rust in that position. The previous thing we had was uh, using Ruby and Sidekick. I think that system started to run into bottlenecking problems around millions of deliveries per day uh, as compared with the might have even been millions per week 
as compared with the uh, you know 10 billion per day that we're doing today. So massive, massive scale difference between the the Rust and the Ruby version. And we also have some some uh, Kafka consumers that are written in Rust. And you know we have some some homegrown tools that that help us to manage that and that also works very well and we have some beautiful high throughput low latency low memory footprint kafka consumers thank you to rest yeah this is an amazing tool i i don't see i find it funny that a lot of people want to go to to go uh mm-hmm. but for me once i saw uh some benchmarks from what's it called this is a long time ago this is a uh, discord where they basically said listen this we had all this we optimized as much as we could no matter what, GC killed us, and uh, yeah. we went to Rust and never looked back since then. I'm, I'm thinking that's really the the power where it's at. Yeah. So Go, you know, Rust is compared with Go a lot. Um, I think they occupy a similar space in you know lower level than Python, Java, whatever languages, uh, systems, programming tools. Are, are commonly written in, in Rust and Go. Servers are commonly written in both. We actually use Go at one signal as well, and we like it for, for certain use cases. But I, I have heard, and I don't I apologize to whoever I heard this from, but the, the comparison that I have heard is Rust is one of the easiest hard languages, and Go is one of the hardest easy languages. Because sort of the uh the pick up and start doing stuff is very hard with Rust because of the borrow checker. But like once you get past that hurdle, it's really easy to do stuff that's scary or hard in other languages, like uh, like FFI, like parallelism, uh, like memory reuse. Whereas Go is is very easy for new people to pick up. You know, there's very few keywords in the language. Uh, the API surface of the language itself is very small. So it's easy for folks generally to look at a Go project that they've never seen before and figure out how it works. But there are so many foot guns in Go, right? It's so easy to not check the errors when a function returns. It's easy to create race conditions from Go routines. It's easy to create too many Go routines and cause GC problems. Uh, What's the other one? There are many surprising things about the way Go language actually works. Like if you have an interface type and like if you have an interface type, comparing it with null isn't actually comparing it with null. Like if you have if you have an interface type and the type is known, then it's actually going to it will actually never compare. It will never be equal to null which is uh, very uh, strange. I was very surprised when I learned that for the first time. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of little things in Go that will like sort of bite you as you go along, as you get more advanced with the language. But it's easier to get started with Go, harder to get started with Rust. But I think, you know, easy to learn, hard to master versus hard to learn, maybe easier to master. I think another important thing you forgot about, which I've always seen people complain about in Go, is that Rust has generics. Go does not. <laughs> yeah, so they're. I think they're adding generics to Go in some upcoming version. I don't know what the timeline of that is, but I have played with the. I have played with the like 
experimental new version of Go that that gives you generics and you know as expected you can use it to write data structures you can finally write a map function in Go it's uh that's nice and I think uh I think some fairly high profile Rust person recently designed a theoretical sum type for Go which is similar to Rust's uh, enums so if this were adopted you know this could theoretically allow for results to take over in Go and replace the the current like error checking mechanism that exists there. I think there are other proposals as well to streamline error checking in Go. But the current system, it's, it's kind of verbose, and uh, I don't know if it's easy to misuse, but I kind of want to skip my error checks in Go because you have to write a lot of code to do them. Yeah, there's always the, what is that? You, you get the assignment from a function and like you can always like uh, prefix error with the underscore and just forget about it and keep yeah. trying to go. Right. Which works in POCs and prototypes, but after that, you, you really need to go back and fix all that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think I kind of abused you too much for my own personal needs, <laughs> but I'm thinking a lot of questions I think that beginning Rust developers also have, like the, the string slice and string. What's mm-hmm. the difference? If I don't have UTF-8, what can I do? There's OS string. There's there's other methods, so don't worry too much. Um, yeah, is there anything that you really wanted to 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 say before we start to sign off? Um, well, along those lines, what you were just saying for for new Rust developers, I would encourage you to not care so much about the theoretically perfect type for you to be using. Um, this sort of ties in with what I said in my RustConf 2021. Uh, talk a couple of months ago. Um, it's, it's very easy for Rust developers to get like swept up in making something that performs as fast as possible just because the language does make it possible to do lots of optimizations that like make you feel good and make you feel smart, uh, when you pull them off. Um, but Rust is a fast language and, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to worry about saving every possible allocation. And using the the lowest memory possible types, um, so you know if you're a new Rust developer, don't be afraid to use a heap allocated string. Don't be afraid to use clone to copy values. Um, you know, focus on writing something that works first, and you know you can you can clean it up later. You can make it fast later. Um, but if you can't solve a problem slow, you probably can't solve it fast. Yeah, I love this advice. I think uh, when I did the Rust Station Station podcast, somebody else also gave this talk. I think it was Luke, Luca. Um, mm-hmm. And that's an important thing. Don't worry about optimizing until it's really a problem. That's right. And uh, I actually, I also spoke uh, last week to a Rust meetup in Oslo, Norway. And it was actually, a, it was a talk about optimization. So I did go into some like nitty gritty details on, on things you can do. It was really interesting. Uh, talk that I'm going to be uploading to, to my YouTube channel in the next couple of days. But uh, I, I heavily prefixed it, or prefaced it by saying, you know, be careful. Don't do this first. These are not best practices. New people, don't worry about doing this stuff. This is like, this is like uh, fancy stuff for when you actually want, you need to exploit all the possible performance. Um, and then the, the other piece there is the other piece there is you have to act if if you're at the point where you're trying to optimize for performance you have to be measuring performance you know you have to have a benchmarking suite or at least you know some mechanism of 
a measuring runtime or you know throughput of your program because if you're just applying optimizations blindly with the belief that you're making your system faster you know i think really all you're doing is trying to convince yourself that you're very smart um by by doing these neat tricks like uh when i was in the process of of optimizing something uh i i made optimizations that i they thought would make the system a lot faster and they actually made the system slower so you have to be measuring uh for performance if you're doing optimization like you shouldn't just be saying oh well, you know i can i can remove this this uh whatever allocation and save you know five cycles on this CLI program that already runs in 10 milliseconds like who cares <laughs> yeah i think most of the time this kind of stuff doesn't really matter but if you're doing like embedded development where with a really crappy cpu then then maybe it's really worth it depends right. kind of your situation or if you're processing a lot of data um like yeah in this this optimization case that i talked through uh last week with the the oslo group um i i took a rest program from uh what did it start at? I think like I think it started at around like 13, 13 uh, megabytes per second up to like 190 megabytes per second through uh, optimizations. And that includes adding parallelism so that that's not just from removing allocations. Uh, so you know there, there are meaningful performance benefits that you can confer through uh, optimizing and through doing tricky things. But it's also worth pointing out that the Python system that I was trying to replace was operating at 500 kilobytes per second. So my very naive Rust version that wasted a lot of memory was still, you know, almost 300 times faster than, than the Python code. I think I remember Python said that if you ever want to go faster, you should always use CFFI. I think I saw that somewhere in the doc somewhere or somebody yep. talking about that. Yeah, you, so you kind of probably fun. shouldn't be worrying about optimizing raw Python code. Um, and if you're tempted to use CFFI, I would say that PyO3 is probably a better choice for you because it's it's very easy to use PyO3 to create extension modules uh, within Rust. Okay. Uh, I think the only thing is I had to say, like, please check out her book, especially if you're interested in, in bringing Rust to your your Flutter projects, or even any other project that you're interested in. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, of course, they won't go into Pio. I don't know if you go, I think you do go into Pio 3, right? Or do you not? Um, you mentioned it for sure. I I am currently writing the Pio 3 chapter, so that will be available uh, within the next couple of weeks. Yep. So the, okay. the book is currently in early access on manning.com. Uh, you, can, you can buy it there, and you can either buy just the ebook, which you will have access to immediately, and you can read the chapters that, that are currently available, and you'll get notified when there's new content that's added. Uh, or you can buy the ebook plus the paper book. And if you do that, you will get the ebook immediately. You'll get notified when there's new content. Uh, but the paper book is not going to go out until everything is finished and you know it goes to the presses and it's it's all said and done. So that'll that'll be a ways out probably. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, but definitely, definitely check out the book. Like I said, I, I found it extremely useful, and uh, yeah, it was very helpful for me. And uh, you brought some more insights to me about the string slice, so that was good. That's great. Well, I'm I'm glad that that was helpful for you, Alan. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. It was great. 
Yeah, it's really great to be on. I might actually have you come back because uh, you always got so much interesting stuff, especially towards the end of your book, because I'm sure there's probably some more things I think that could be useful for people in the audience. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I certainly hope so. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Um, yeah. I, like I said, I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you.